I'm here with science journalist, author, and addiction and drug policy expert, Maya Solovitz. Um, Maya has written for, I don't know, virtually every publication you've ever read, including the New York Times, Washington Post, New York Magazine, Time, Vice, Newsday, Newsweek. I should stop listing because so many others. And she's the co-author of several popular books, including Help at Any Cost, a co-authorship with Bruce Perry called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And more recently, she wrote the book Unbroken Brain, which quickly became a best uh, New York Times bestseller. And she recently released the book, which we'll discuss today, called Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. Maya, it's a real, real pleasure to get to talk with you again. Thanks for returning. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, right out of the gate, I'm going to say that I think Unbroken Brain was a tremendous book, and, uh, and that was a must-read. And I don't know, maybe it should be required reading. That was really eye-opening for me and I think for a lot of people. And in fact, I'm a fan, uh, huge fan of your work in general. So I want that to frame it that way because I think it should mean something when I say that from my perspective, undoing drugs is your greatest creation to date. Uh, do you feel the same way? Well, a lot, a lot of people do. I'm kind of like a mom with my book, so I really don't want to like play favorites, but um, yeah, favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that this took an enormous amount of work and sure. that I cared very greatly about doing justice to the movement. And I still feel guilty about the stuff I had to leave out. And I'm really hoping that other people will pick up that stuff because it is really important. But I really wanted to give readers an overview and a sense of the chronology and a sense of why this idea matters um, in a way that would be engaging. And so far, it seems like people are um, finding it that way. So it's, it's kind of gratifying. It's like, a, it's like a tomb that you can build upon. Uh, let me just catch people up. Um, the book's premise, I'll begin, you can expand. It's a book about the history of harm reduction as a philosophy, as a movement, and as a way of life. And you kind of took it from its inception or genesis, you might say, through its history and talked about harm reduction in the present day. Um, it's, I guess you, you might add more than that. Um, you're the one who has a way with words. Maybe you'll expand on that a bit. What's the essence of undoing drugs? Well, yeah, I wanted to give, this is actually the first ever history of harm reduction, which is kind of surprising given that there are many academics who are searching for original topics. And I've now written two uh, original histories. Um, so um, I'm not trying to boast. I'm just kind of shocked that uh, that these topics were just lying around and nobody else did them. Um, yeah. But anyway, I thought, and I believe a lot of people now feel that harm reduction was a topic that deserved history. It was certainly a movement that I felt deserved a history. And I feel that it is the biggest challenge to the drug war that the drug war has ever faced. And I believe the drug warriors knew that really early on, which is why they tried to suppress it. And now that white people are affected by the uh, opioid crisis, suddenly we actually do want to be kind and save lives and, and care about the individuals who use drugs um, in a way that we didn't previously. So I wanted to sort of explain how we went from you know, everybody, all the politicians being really gung-ho and the media being really gung-ho about the drug war to people now at least saying, not necessarily practicing, but saying we can't arrest our way out of this. I wonder if we could book in this kind of question concept um, because I think it matters as it applies to the beginning of the book chronologically and to the end. What is harm reduction to you? I know there are a variety of definitions, depends on who you talk to, but you must have some central definition. Yes, harm reduction is the philosophy within drug policy that believes that we should reduce harm rather than stopping people from getting high. Now, beyond that, there's specific techniques, but if something doesn't actually reduce harm, it cannot be considered as harm reduction, which makes it very hard to argue against. So. Before I even get into the substance of the book, we talked about this last time, no doubt. I'm, I think I heard you on, uh, I think Zach Siegel interviewed you and talked to you about this. That sounds like dangerously close to Carl Hart's idea, like drugs aren't the problem, but also Carl Hart is a person who is now famously, infamously, I don't know, said harm reduction has to go. I think I understand what he meant in a more nuanced way than harm reduction has to go. Where do you align uh, with him or, or where do you not in that, on that front? Well, um, this is the problem. I 
absolutely respect and admire Carl's work. And I think um, he has a really important point that pleasure is underrepresented in the dialogue around drugs. That said, if you want to argue with people who are considering moving away from the drug war, I have the right to do drugs, my pleasure matters, really fails when you try to argue with somebody who said, what about the kids, right? Mm -hmm. So it's far better to say, yeah, what about the kids? Are they gonna live or are they gonna die? And yes. that's where harm reduction focuses. And harm reduction assumes that people are going to use drugs which you know, we've done before we evolved into human beings. So the, you know, the, I get why people want more talk about the fact that most people who use drugs don't have harm. But when you're making policy, I think that I don't really want policymakers concerned about my pleasure. I want them out of my life in terms of pleasure. I right. want them to focus only if there is potential harm to me or someone else. Right. And so that's why I believe harm reduction as a movement and as a concept is so powerful because it forces you to say, okay, what is the goal of our policy? Um, traditionally, the goal has been let's stop drugs. And I think it makes much more sense to say, let's stop harm. And the reality of that is that when you focus on harm, you are preventing harm to actual human beings. And when you focus on drugs, you really don't care what happens to the people as long mm. as the numbers go down. And that's right. a really dangerous form of policy as we've all seen. There's like a focusing illusion on drugs. People think about drugs as the end goal, whether to stop them or continue them or which drugs are okay. And that, as you laid out in your book, is just a completely faulty framing and premise when, when it comes to human life. Well, exactly. And that's why I called it undoing drugs, because our concept of drugs is completely ridiculous. For one, mm. alcohol, um, tobacco, and caffeine, which are all drugs, are not considered drugs in our, we talk about alcohol and drugs. Um, mm. You know, it we don't consider the drugs we find culturally acceptable to be drugs and then everything else is a drug and that is absurd and it creates these bizarre um problems within the law related to pain care and related to things like psychedelics and it's just really silly to have this concept of drugs as a thing that does not include the ones we like so in the book, you talked about um, your own early life as a drug user who took risks. And maybe at some points you didn't realize the extent of the risks that you were taking. And when you found out a way, there was a way to mitigate a lot of the worst risks. It's like you found out, oh my God, this is a huge risk. And then it's like subsequently and not long after found out, oh, there's a way to mitigate this enormous risk and continue using. And then it's like, well, what the hell? Why didn't I know about any of this? Uh, I imagine that that began your journey, and I think that you said so in the book itself. We talk about a little bit about that, uh, your early experiences as a drug user. Sure. So, I mean, I literally learned that I was at risk for HIV when I was about to inject sharing a needle um, and then was told that I could clean it with bleach to protect myself. So it was really the same moment that I learned both of those things. And it just outraged me because there were literally people going around saying, don't teach them to use bleach to clean their needles, let alone give them needles because that will encourage them. Well, hello, we're already shooting up and we're already 50% of us and there's 200,000 of us in New York City, 50% um, are already HIV positive. So you really wanna just say, okay, you just stop and, and that will solve it. Or, okay, go die to be an example so that our kids see you dying and, and then they won't do that. Like that is not humane and human beings are all supposed to be valued as ourselves, as an individual, not as a means to some other end, like here, I'm going to go die as an example to your child. First of all, your child isn't going to be paying attention. <laughs> Second of all, if your child could learn from other people's experiences, it would be learning from your experiences. And so you wouldn't need to have us die in order to, um, you know, it's just like, when you actually speak about what they're saying about needle exchange sends the wrong message, it's just astonishing. Like people would rather have people who use drugs die than 
protect them and keep them alive. And, and so I was, yeah, I was just infuriated. And um, as a white middle-class woman, I was not used to being treated like that. And it just, you know, it, it sort of um, made me aware of a lot of privilege and a lot of the racism that is in the war on drugs. Yeah. And it just made me want to like try to save people because I thought it was outrageous that, you know, I could be reading two newspapers a day and watching the TV news and not know that I was at risk for a deadly disease and there was a way to prevent it. In my book, Outgrowing Addiction, I, I mean, this is a concept that matters so deeply when it, as, as it pertains to harm reduction, because, you know, as long as people can stay alive, they'll generally continue to mature and make more reasoned choices for themselves in a more balanced way. I got to, I'm sorry, I'm like, this is just goes to show the power of stories, I guess. As I was reading your book, um, the, the, the humanizing of every single element that you did uh, brought things into focus, I think, in a way that, you know, even when I write or speak, I, I'm, usually, I'm usually kind of immune to getting choked up or too emotional about thinking about my own experience. I had a near-death experience uh, using heroin at, at one point and, and thinking about, well, the idea, as you say, of sending a message. Well, no, we can't keep people alive for the steel man, that argument. No, we can't keep people alive in this way because it'll send the wrong message. It's deeply disturbing. And as you say, um, you know, how privileged am I to have the resources and the sort of um, just my place as a, you know, I'm a white male in politics and in middle class. And so politically speaking, you know, I'm somebody that is worth saving. Um, so thinking about all the people who aren't or who are easy to leave our purview is super disturbing. So let me pull back. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your, your, let's call it recovery or your outgrowth of, uh, I guess, destructive drug use? Um, you know, I was a very geeky kid who got into drugs, um, because they allowed me to connect with people and to not be so overloaded with my senses and emotions the way I sort of naturally was. And that got me in a lot of trouble. Um, along the way, I had developed a sort of enormous amount of self-hatred that the uh, drug use allowed me to anesthetize. And I felt like without that, I just couldn't be in the world. And so, you know, I ended up shooting up 40 times a day with cocaine, even when I really hated cocaine. Um, and, you know, my drug of choice was heroin and opioids in general. And, um, you know, it was always a struggle to make sure I was getting it and not getting ripped off and, you know, not getting arrested. And, uh, like, I'm very glad I don't have to deal with that anymore, especially mm -hmm. now, like, with all the fentanyl that's out there. It's just, ugh. You know, and, and the thing that, you know, that is just heartbreaking is that we see people with addiction as these like horrible hedonists who are just out there to like have fun and be selfish and ignore their children and like piss off their parents when we're really just trying to survive emotionally. We're trying to, this is what makes us feel okay. Now you may think it's bad that this is what make us, makes us feel okay, but if you don't offer us a alternative, um, we're going to continue doing this because you don't know what it's like to live in my nervous system. And I really wish we would begin to understand that because everybody assumes, oh, well, you know, I can deadlift 300 pounds, so surely you can. It's like, mm. obviously you're a wimp. Um, so, you know, like it's, it's like we have these assumptions about the way people's neurology and neuroscience and chemistry and emotions are that are just standardized, that are just not true. Um, and we just assume that if something's easy for us, it's going to be easy for somebody else or that, oh, they can just pick themselves up or whatever it is. And no, like, you don't know what it's like to have severe trauma or to have, um, a condition like autism or ADHD or depression or bipolar or schizophrenia or any of these things. Most people who do not have those conditions haven't even thought about what it is actually like to have them and to live with the sensory and emotional experience that that gives. So um, anyway, yeah, um, I, was, I was very, very desperate and very, very unhappy. And I was very, very lucky 
and also privilege to be able to escape that situation without going to jail for 15 years, which I was facing due to selling cocaine. So um, I felt that in order to um, give back for what I had been given, I had to make sure that other people would not be treated the way I was. Um, in, well, I mean that other people should be treated with the privilege, but not in the way I was as an active drug user as like right. a horrible piece of scum. Um, and right. that we should not be sending people to prison for having a disease. And, you know, whether you call it a disease or a learning disorder or a medical condition, whatever, it's not something that people choose to have. And people, um, you know, just have all these misconceptions about, you know, what is the problem? Because we see drugs as the problem when, in fact, people with addiction see drugs as a solution. So you need to figure out what the problem is that they're trying to solve and help them solve it in a healthier way if you're going to make any headway with this problem. Beautifully said. Your, your discussion about um, the way we expect people to live according to these like standards of perfection that we create for everybody is... Um, so salient in everyone's life on one hand it's a problem that like a two-year-old can so actually literally a two-year-old can so i was talking to my two-year-old daughter recently about a person in her class she said well he's mean and it was a very simple conversation i said you know sometimes when it seems like people are mean sometimes really they're sad and they're acting like they're mean and she completely understood that and absorbed it and talks about how this person is sad sometimes and it's like uh, and that's not exactly harm reduction, but it is like empathy and understanding that a two-year-old can do. And you would imagine that since it's so easy, it's almost like emperor's new clothes kind of a thing. Since it's so easy and obvious, why don't we just democratize that essence? Um, but that's just not the way it works or has worked. So can you talk about, I guess, what do you feel are the, the origins of harm reduction as a movement as it pertains to drugs? Sure. And please discuss some of the difficulties in that moving or getting started. Right. Well, so um, as a historian in this instance, I had a choice to make about where do I start? Now, there are ideas about harm reduction that go back to Hippocrates, first do no harm, right? Um, but the movement as a movement starts in Liverpool. Needle exchange had recently been um, invented in Rotterdam at the time. And the Dutch definitely had what you can call a harm reduction policy um, that they were doing in terms of um, essentially legalizing marijuana, although they didn't technically legalize it, um, and um, you know providing methadone on a low threshold basis and, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but it, the Liverpool people packaged it. They took needle exchange and they were they had a doctor who was prescribing heroin and cocaine to people so that they would reduce the risks of the street drugs and they put the idea together and started having conferences and a journal and all of the things um and just people who were evangelizing for it and that actually made it into a movement so with any movement it's kind of hard to figure out where to start but I decided that based on the fact that the Liverpoolians had done this um, and that it is kind of pretty universally acknowledged that Russell Newcomb's 1987 article, High Time for Harm Reduction, is kind of the founding writing mm -hmm. of the movement. Um, and so when you start there, you can then kind of look at um, who the patient zeros are who spread it all over the world. And uh, somebody very early on in my writing gave me the advice that that's what I wanted to do. And they were absolutely correct. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's what I did. And I mean, there were some people who just had a huge impact that no one has heard of because um, they weren't writing, they were speaking and, and training people and, you know, out there, I mean, they did some writing, but um, the person I'm thinking of specifically right now is Edith Springer, who virtually every person who has had an impact in harm reduction either trained her or was trained by her <laughs> or was trained by somebody she trained. Mm. 
Um, she was enormously influential in spreading it um, all over the country. She's just about to celebrate, I think it's her 75th birthday. Um, so wow. happy birthday, Edith. Um, we are um, working on sending her some messages. Um, she's not exactly well, but she's there. <laughs> mm. um, you know, it's just that age, things happen. Um, but um, anyway, um, it was just amazing to see the impact one person could have. And she really, um, you know, taught a lot of people about how to deal with drugs in a much more compassionate way. Um, I want to talk more about Springer. Before we do, you were talking about Newcomb's paper um, about harm reduction and being sort of an initial document. Um, and, and I know that the person you're talking about, the physician who prescribed heroin is John Marks. Yeah. I read his name in your book and I was so happy to see his name. I actually interviewed him a few years back and I remember listening to him and thinking, isn't this like, given what people think they know about addiction or drugs here, you know, why is his name not a household name? Uh, why is what he's saying well, not? Part of it, part of it is because he did rather outrageous things. And for example, when I am a person who's like three years in recovery and I'm interviewing him and he's like, oh, you know, you probably would have been just as crazy without the cocaine. Like, not very cool. Also kind of implying that I could just safely use, again, not very cool to a person mm. who in recovery and believes in that model. Like, I don't think it is appropriate for somebody to try to directly undermine yes, yes. someone's beliefs about their own recovery. And I right. think that his provocative nature is part of the reason, and I think this also applies to Stanton, that, um, uh, you know, that there's a lot of people who are just pissed off by them and don't listen to the good ideas that they actually have. You know, I thought the same thing when I was talking to him. It was like he's very, uh, has an opinion that's not going to be uh, cut in half in any in any way. Stanton is similar. You know, I, the distinction I would make, of course, is I don't think Stanton would tell anybody what would or wouldn't have or should or should have happened for them. But let's uh, take the person, if we take the person out of it, like somebody who's working under the auspices of Thatcher in England and who, uh, you know, who's a young, well, I think he was a psychiatrist, right? And so they're like, well, we, we have this problem here. People are dying. It has to do with drugs. And he's thinking, okay, you're, you're the resident guy. So you go deal with the junkies. Almost like it's a punishment or a. Well, but or, that wasn't coming from Thatcher. That was just coming from his predecessor in Liverpool and uh, Liverpool right. a medical backwater. And that was why they still had as much prescribing as they did. Um, right. The old British system still survives. Very, there's very few doctors that are still prescribing, but there are still some. Um, and the fact that the remnants of that situation had remained despite enormous pressure from the United States to stop it um, is really important. And I think part of the downfall of harm reduction within the UK came because John Marks and um, Alan Perry and some other people in the Liverpool group um, got on 60 Minutes. Right, right. That did not make Thatcher happy. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, right. So point being, this is somebody whose mind changed like on a dime as soon as he started seeing what was going on when you gave somebody a safe reason, you know, um, regular supply of the drug that they sought, but took out all of the other variables that might make life difficult when you're, when you're going for, when you're trying to procure drugs. So anyway, I was, I was happy to see that. And so there's something about your book that kind of tries to explain, again, taking the person out of it, why ideas like that weren't just easily propagated. You know, the, as you, you also mentioned that there was something about harm reduction when it was becoming popularized or trying to become popularized or trying to be at least heard at all, that there was quantitative data. You know, you only talk about it if you can show that it actually is saving lives. And then here's the idea that, okay, if it is saving lives, who could argue yet people did? And so perhaps you can talk about that landscape a bit. Well, sure. I mean, and I think, you know, um, people were so convinced that the best way to fight drugs was like prohibit them and stigmatize them and lock people up as an example um, that and the, and the fact that 
the only they believed and many still believe the only way to get people to stop is to just make their lives so miserable um, that they will hit bottom and suddenly do what you want them to do. The reality is quite different. And what the harm reduction research shows very clearly, for example, if you prescribe heroin to people, it does not keep people's addiction going longer. It actually, they're just as likely to start to abstain or to um, get better, in fact, more likely than if they are still using street heroin. So the all what harm reduction does it, is it undermines the fundamental ideology of prohibition and of abstinence-only treatment. Mm. And that makes it super threatening. And so the thing is, it doesn't have to be. And there are plenty of people who are both very proud 12-steppers and very proud harm reductionists. Um, but if you take seriously the idea, for example, that hitting bottom is essential to recovery, which even 12-steppers don't do. If you look in the big book, there's high bottoms too, or I think the 12 and 12, whatever. Anyway, the, um, you know, people recover all the time when they're not at any kind of bottom. And in fact, if you just think about it, who's more likely to recover, the CEO or the homeless guy? Mm. You know, right. it, it's not that difficult to realize that resources matter and that when you hit bottom, you probably don't have resources and that makes it very hard to come out. Um, so it is just, anyway, but it undermines all these concepts like codependence and enabling and hitting bottom and powerlessness and the idea that like shaming and stigmatizing works. And that made it very threatening um, to people who believe that those things were essential truths for all addiction. Um, you know, right from the start. And if those things are essential truths, I imagine, um, of course, ideology is tough to crack. It's you, you build it into a self-conception um, and a conception of the people around you and people you love. And if that those are your ideas and you take those as truths, then you're doing harm reduction. You can ask the question, okay, you're saving lives at what cost? You and I would say, what do you mean at, what, at the cost of saving lives? But, you know, it's like, well, you're still allowing, you're enabling, let's, let's say, people to use drugs who are going to continue to use drugs. And so this thing that I think is evil is just going to continue to happen uh, indefinitely. Well, that I mean, I think, <laughs> I think the important, the other thing that it undermines is that if you are actively using, you have no emotional life and no reality and all, right. of, you, all of what you do is worthless. And that's exactly. incredibly dehumanizing and you know, it's just that I will attack because it's just wrong. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think it is an essential aspect of 12-7 ideology to believe that, but there has been belief in that idea. And, and it's, it's just simply wrong. And it especially hits home, for example, let's say somebody has 10 years of, you know, 12-step abstinence, and then they use for one day. Now they are considered as much of a newcomer as somebody who was using for 10 years and stopped for a day. Um, and that's just ridiculous. Um, you know, that experience and that growth and all of that stuff that you had doesn't go away because you had one day that was bad. Um, <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, my solution, my sort of middle ground solution to this is, okay, you have 10 years, you slip, you get um, 90 days back, you get your 10 years back. And uh, I, I mean, I think that's a reasonable compromise. I am sure that there are plenty of 12-step folks that would disagree with me, but I also know that there are plenty that agree with me because I've talked to them. Um, and it's just, you know, I get that people want to value continuous abstinence because right. you can measure and it's like concrete, um, but it shouldn't be the be all and end all for everybody. And I think, you know, the idea, like I killed 10 people, but I stayed sober. So it was a good day. It's just not okay. <laughs> it's at some level I, you've hit on, and I've read this in your work before. It's like, you, you might disagree even fundamentally, but at some level people just need to be allowed to believe what they believe, but not at the expense of damaging other people's lives. You know, that's, yeah, <clears> that, that becomes silly. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I do agree with that. I think that, you know, um, I am very strongly in favor of keeping self-help as self-help and mutual aid 
and keeping it outside of the medical healthcare system. Uh, because, you know, I am perfectly fine with people taking moral inventory and finding it useful. I am not fine with only people with addiction get forced to do this as part of treatment. That's just not okay. So people are going to have to read your book. I want, there's plenty left to read. Um, could you take us through a romp kind of, of um, you mentioned Edith Springer, and I, I would love to hear a little bit about the propagation of the idea of harm reduction and how that happened in the U.S. and how that kind of unfolded. You know, we're, we're going to leave out some key details, but that's okay as long as you can kind of cover the yes, uh, general so, basis. so Edith met Alan Carey from Liverpool, and the scales fell from her eyes and she was converted and she <laughs> uh, became a harm reductionist right at that point. She had previously um, been in favor of abstinence, although she was not really into 12 steps. Um, so she, um, she began training people all over the place. And one of the people that she trained, for example, was Dan Big, who helped found the um, Harm Reduction Coalition and also um, helped uh, reframe the idea of recovery as being not abstinence, but positive change. Hmm. Um, any positive change as defined by the person who's making the changes. Um, and that was a really revolutionary thing. He also was the guy who got naloxone, Narcan, out of the medical lockup that it had been in. You know, it was only available in hospitals and some ambulances. And he just got it on the streets where people could use it and save lives. And he literally saved tens of thousands of lives by getting it out of that stupid bureaucratic trap and by evangelizing for it and letting people know that there is a really non-toxic uh, antidote to opioids that everyone should have in their own first aid kit all the time, just in case you know a little kid gets into the drugs or a teenager or a 40 something or whatever grandma takes the pills several times you got the naloxone you're good <laughs> so you know so he's obviously an important figure um dave purchase um really big on the west coast um helped found the um oh it's called nason national Association. Uh, anyway it's the syringe exchange network that like helped mm. um all the needle exchanges across the country um, get supplies and figure out policies and, and talk to each other and support each other. Um, and he also helped found the um, Harm Reduction Coalition, which then kind of formalized this as a thing and began, you know, spreading the word and training people. Edith worked for them for a while. Um, so there's there's all these like amazing people um, who you know spread the message and who you know went out and gave out needles and gave out naloxone and taught people about, you know, compassionate treatment is what we need and uh, fought the laws and got arrested. And, you know, so it's, it's really um, one of the things that's actually, was actually kind of fun about writing this. It's like this story of these activists who did this cool stuff that nobody heard of. Yeah. So I'm going to ask the same question again, as I did earlier. We, we, um, you gave a definition of harm reduction and then it's been sort of brought into the spotlight. As you mentioned in your book, I think in the last chapter, it's, it is harm reduction is alive now in a way that you can't really ignore. So it's whether or not you agree with it, there's an unignorable force movement that is harm reduction that, and it's part of the conversation people it's a mainstream conversation now uh, as it, but people have different definitions of it. For instance, I'm in Burlington, Vermont. I think you've visited here before. And there are different agencies who will call harm reduction something different. Harm reduction could mean that you're in a treatment facility and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll absorb whatever harm reduction is convenient and then it'll just be assimilated into the standard boxes. Or some people are just pure, like, uh, safe recovery here. It's just harm reduction means what it means. It's purely whatever it is that a person or community needs to be safe, to stay alive. They'll give it to them. How do you see these um, divided sort of definitions of harm reductions come into play in uh, policy and in like practical? practical well, I terms? think when anything gets trendy and gets into the mainstream, it can get co-opted. And yeah. so I have personal experience with, you know, in the addiction treatment system, people start saying, because motivational interviewing gets trendy. So they start saying, I'm doing motivational interviewing. They're still doing the same old stuff they've ever done. Right. Um, right. And it's still not 
user-friendly or patient-centered or any of that. It's completely the opposite. It's absolutely humiliating. Yeah. It's nothing like motivational interviewing. Um, but they pick up the phrase and then they sell themselves as doing it when they actually aren't. And that, you know, I'm sure is happening with harm reduction in certain places. And that's why we still need activists out there on the street telling us what it is, being more radical than maybe I would personally choose to be, but being out there and saying, you know, um, and then also people within the establishment saying, um, okay, this is what harm reduction means. It has to be patient-centered. It has to meet people where they are. It has to be compassionate. It can't be about any one route to recovery. It can't be just abstinence. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, everybody gets that little feeling of like, I knew this band before they were famous and now everybody likes them. Um, and there's a little bit of that with harm reduction. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, we got to grow up and et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, Monique Tula, who's the head of the, what is now called the National Harm Reduction Coalition, um, which was very annoying that they changed their name when I was writing my book. But um, <laughs> anyway, like, obviously that's fine. But um, so, you know, she said that, um, you know, all activism seeks for their stuff to become mainstream. That's when you want, um, you don't want to be co-opted, but you do want, mainstream people to take your ideas and techniques and actions on board. And there is a little loss in that, in the sense of, oh, you're no longer the person on the outside doing cool things. Yeah. Uh, so there's still plenty of outside cool things for people in harm reduction to do, especially given our ongoing criminalization. But what I have personally been happily surprised to see is the rise of marijuana legalization and now the rise of decriminalization. Because the thing is, once you take away the idea that the role of drug policy is to send a message, there is absolutely no good argument for criminalization. Right. You talked about, I mean, this is just kind of an obvious thing. It's one of those things that's so obvious to me that I, I've glossed over. You talked about there are groups of people who, I don't know, what, what's, the lack, what's a better term than who just aren't seen, who go under the radar, who whatever their problems are, it's easy to look the other way if we can't relate to them. And so a lot of policies have been overtly racist, somewhat racist, or just classist, or just not willing to look at the problems that people are having who have um, issues beyond the scope of, you know, ready sound bites. Can you talk about that, those kinds of populations um, for a bit and and who has been ignored and, and how those people have sort of come back with, with their voices at the forefront? Well, I think what Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow makes very clear that what our drug policy is really good at is locking up black and brown people. And that in that sense, it is a great success. Um, in that horrible racist sense, I am stressing. Right. If that's um, if that was if that were the goal, right? Yes, but that must be the goal because it's terrible at reducing addiction, reducing drug use, um, helping people, uh, saving lives. You know, it, it does the opposite of those things. And so, um, you know, when when something has such traction and is so harmful, you have to start looking at you know what are the covert reasons that it might persist. And I think it's not like there's some big racist conspiracy to like do this. It's just right out there in the open. Like these drug laws were passed for explicitly racist reasons. Right. Uh, you know, when you look at the origins of them, they're all like, well, black people are going to get white girlfriends. So we better like, you know, cocaine will help them do this. So we better like, you know, it's, it's explicitly there. It's like, you don't have to like, make the connection it's just written right there out in the open um, and then when you get to you know the later iterations in like the 70s and 80s like the crack thing in the 80s could not have been more visibly racist i mean more white people than black people smoked crack but every single media image for the most part was black people um and the black people were not ignored they were just focused on by the police mm. they were not helped <laughs> um, and so there were, um, you know, for a long time, unfortunately, um, you know, some of the black leadership was very committed to prohibition because they thought that drugs were such a big problem in the community 
and there was they were offered no other solution. They didn't see any other way. And then when the new Jim Crow and a lot of harm reduction activism by black people happened, it was sort of like, oh, wait a minute, this is racist. We can't support this horrible uh, policy um, because it's not helping us. And so that also took cover away from white politicians supporting the drug war. And so, because like, if the black people weren't supporting it and they were saying it was racist and the white people started saying, um, you know, uh, we still think it's, you know, yeah, can't go there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, um, it, that made an enormous difference and, and, and black harm reductionists, um, and people like Michelle Alexander and other black activists and hip hop folks and all kinds of people um, who you know, made these points um, in the media to the press um, and finally began convincing people, um, you know, made an enormous difference. And the harm reduction movement has known from the beginning that it has to be a racial justice movement because the drug war is racist and you cannot solve the problem without looking at why this persists and why this persists as racism. So, you know, it's, it's always, it's just a horrible challenge, but to be anti-racist, you have to fight these policies that enforce racism. And I mean, I think that was horribly clear in the George Floyd case, because while he was literally dying, one of the other police officers who was just standing there said, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. And if that doesn't encapsulate how we use drugs to dehumanize Black people, I don't know what does. Um, you know, the whole point of this policy is dehumanizing people so we can feed them into the correctional system. If we don't accept that, if we as a people and as Americans and as citizens and people of the world, if we don't accept that nonsense, that can't happen. And you know, seeing <laughs> seeing Black Lives Matter um, embrace harm reduction and um, you know making these points very visibly was incredibly amazing. And I just want to see that progress continue. This is uh, this could get complicated so I, I mean we can, we can kind of give it a an, an overview but are there ways in which people are unwittingly supporting the sort of more destructive policies thinking that what they're doing is something like harm reduction for instance uh people who have taken on the the disease model you mentioned in the book let, that you know conservatives and and liberals alike began arguing at some point that, okay, this is not something, we don't incarcerate our way out of this problem. Yet, we, whether it's incarceration by sending people to certain treatment programs or incarceration by locking people in jails, and yet also we are still sending people to jail even in the midst of those arguments, um, I think that it's easy for us to, to um, wrap a banner around something that we're doing that says, you know, compassion when actually it's just feeding into the problem. Um, maybe you can describe some of that misdirected yeah, well, think, energy now. Yeah, I think what often happens, and this is like the whole idea of tough love, is that parents get co-opted into harming their own children. And once mm. that happens, it's really hard to pull them back from that because once you've actually hurt your children in the name of helping them, it is a grievous thing to admit if you're a parent. Sure. So the... It, it has been really fascinating, and, and I, I focus on this in the book, to see a parents' movement grow up around harm reduction, recognizing that, oh, wait, just saying no and letting my kids stay in jail when they, or deliberately getting them arrested, um, that actually harms. And parents have realized this. And especially, like, you know, white parents had the power to start saying no to this that other communities do not have. And they were able to stand up against it because of their privilege um, in, in more effective sometimes ways. Um, so to see the, you know, the parents recognizing that, wait a minute, I don't have the disease of codependence because like I love my kid and I want to save their life. Um, like, right. 
you know, when I care for my kid with cancer, I'm not codependent. Why would I suddenly have a disease when I care for my kid with addiction? I may be doing it ineffectively, but that doesn't mean I have a disease. I mean, that's just so ridiculous. Um, but we have pathologized even the people who care about people with addiction and the disease stuff there does do a lot of harm. Like codependence simply isn't a disease. It isn't even a concept that can be defined. Um, you know, nobody's been able to make a replicable measure for it. No, um, it's meaningful, right? It's basically astrology. So, um, no, um, <laughs> insult intended to astrologers who may be helpful in some instances, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, I think it's, you know, parents often, you know, they seek help in that is what exists. And they're often told that the only way to help your kid is to like cut them off and never talk to them again, unless they do what you want in terms of treatment. And that is very destructive. And we actually, you know, we've studied this, like there's research showing that if you do a more kind, gentle approach to getting people you know, meeting people where they're at and moving them along um, as a family, it is much more effective and much less risky than the big intervention that could send them and split your family forever. And people get that. Like part of the reason the gentler stuff works better is that people are more willing to do it. So much, um, right, which, right, right. You know, surprise, surprise. Like, you know, people don't want to do a big, horrible confrontation where they say terrible things to their family members. <laughs> if you can it's do like, it oh, I have, per I have permission to like parent my kid the way that seems natural to me. Oh, isn't that right? And I mean, you know, you'll see a lot of that in the book. Like the parents who, um, you know, realize that, that our way of dealing with this is wrong, speak a lot about how, you know, I knew I should be there for my kid. This never felt right. You know, they yeah. kept telling me I need to do this. And I'm like, this just goes against all my instincts as a parent. Like, why would this one thing be different? Exactly. Um, I work with, I work with kids in schools and I've never met a parent who is resistant to the, to any of my ideas that if we just used to some common sense strategies, empathy, love, nurturance, that, that that is wrong or no, what are you talking about? People say, oh my God, thank God. I thought that that was, you know, I was doing the wrong thing. Right. And that's, you know, um, it's really, um, you know, and this isn't to say that sometimes people don't need boundaries and that sure, like, sure. your kid is stealing from you. Right. You may have to like cut things off for a while and, and this kind of thing, but it's just important to realize that you're doing that to protect your family, which is perfectly fine and right. perfectly acceptable, but it's just not going to fix the person with addiction. Um, and it may make them worse, but if you have to do it, you have to protect yourself and the rest of your family in order to be able to be there to protect your kid later. So it's, um, you know, but it is, it is really hard. And like, one of the things that is especially difficult is that, you know, while most people with addiction are, you know, they have depression or, um, you know, ADHD or, um, other kinds of problems some people with addiction do have antisocial personality disorder and are not empathetic and were that way before they ever touched a drug and the drug makes it worse. And we don't know what to do with that as a society. We don't know how to deal with that. And fortunately, it's a very small proportion of the population. It's a higher proportion of the addicted population, but it's still a minority even within the addicted population. But that's like, you know, harm reduction for antisocial is something somebody needs to, um, <laughs> somebody needs to develop. Maybe I'll pick that up now that you've, you've popularized leaving like unattended uh, historical <laughs> notions on the table. Maybe I should pick that up. Um, okay. One more thing that's, that's tangential. Um, I live in Burlington, Vermont again, and I, uh, I'm a musician and a lot of us are super into the Grateful Dead. I never was until I started playing shows and realized that if you were one of the best Grateful Dead bands or play Grateful Dead music and you're really good, you'll sell out anywhere. Um, one, of, one of the guys that I play with, Zach Nugent is his name, actually became the player for the Jerry Garcia band. So oh, it got wow. me thinking, I think in Unbroken Brain, you mentioned that you uh, yeah. had some sort of relationship. And I think it was like all drug based with Jerry yeah. Garcia. Could you talk a little bit about that? We don't even have to put this on the interview. I'm just no, super no, curious. Fine. So, I mean, like, you know, when I was like, I guess 17, um, I had a boyfriend who was one of Jerry's dealers. Um, and so I wound up in Jerry's room doing coke with him, um, talking about, you know, my name, Maya, being 
illusion in Buddhism and uh, <laughs> all kinds of trippy stuff. But it was, you know, obviously I was like seriously starstruck and, uh, you know, it was kind of amazing. I, I only met him a couple of times, um, but it was really, um, you know, I was deadhead and I met Jeremy. So <laughs> imagine man. Next to that can't even happen now. To somebody. You know, so that's, exactly. that's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's it's just, you know what I mean? The other thing I do want to say positive about the Grateful Dead is that, you know, um, they are not just people who like spread psychedelics and drugs around the world. They also were one of the few that supported needle exchange and that yeah. did not shy away from harm reduction like things. Whereas, you know, people like Eric Clapton and some of these, yeah. Lou Reed, like didn't do anything to help their fellow IV drug users around AIDS. And that I still find outrageous. Like I still find it outrageous that like how many rock bands didn't inject drugs and where were they when we needed them? I'll know when people read your book, if they listen to this interview, if they comment that uh, you glossed over like everything important. So there's so much left to read. It's an amazing book. As I say, it's, um, it's factual and it tells the story very well. The chronology of it is amazing. The salient points you hit are amazing. The stories that are bound within the book are, I mean, it's just, it gives it all incredible salience. And one thing I'll say about Stanton, um, since we mentioned him earlier, he and I actually, I mean, he's critical about everything. So we wrote each other an email at the same time saying, this book is amazing. And so, was, you know, we were both reading it and thinking this is, this it couldn't possibly be better. It's so genuine and honest. So congratulations on, on okay, an amazing and, and piece of work. To be fair, I, he sent me a really, really lovely note about that. And, um, you know, I, uh, like, I love Stanton, like, <laughs> you know, it's, I, you know, but we can say he's a curmudgeon, you know, and, and I do think like, um, one of the things that, you know, I learned about activism while writing this is just that you need the bomb throwers, like not literal bombs, um, but the, you know, metaphorical ones, um, you need the most extreme radical folks, as well as the people in the establishment, like, it's just your temperament that's going to determine where you're going to personally be mm. on that spectrum if you are. Right. And both of them are fine and the middle is fine. And it's just like, it's just kind of a matter of like what you feel able to do. And so, um, you know, um, while I will critique the occasional thing, and I'm sure he will critique the occasional thing about me, um, it is very lovely to hear that. Yeah. Well, congratulations again. And thank you so much for spending time to talk with me about it. Sure. Um, thank you very much as well.